Hey, what's up? This is Mr. Bill. Uh, before you listen to this podcast, I just wanted to let you know I'm going on tour. Go check out uh, mrbillstunes.com forward slash tour. I'm going to a bunch of cities and a bunch of new dates are constantly getting added and uh, enjoy the podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're 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 all right i'm recording thanks for thanks for coming on the podcast oh it's a pleasure mate good to be yeah. here yeah yeah um well yeah the reason why i do it like this is because i want to have the setup in such a way that i can just like put it all in a bag because i mean i do travel with a bag usually i travel with a backpack and then one carry-on bag yeah but i don't want to like up my setup to the point where i need to travel with like a checked bag and shit like that but it's very difficult with a checked bag it life's is. hard on the well, slow run it takes road. you an extra like 30 minutes to get out of the airport <laughs> I like, true i like true. um getting the closest seat to the front of the plane I can, getting off the plane and just, like, fucking power walking out to the street. Nice. <laughs> the nice power walk, hip movements, and you make make a scene, do you? People look, get um, drifted in your <laughs> caught in your sight lines and, oh, look at that, mate. <laughs> They're like, look at him go. <laughs> look at him go. What a sight. <laughs> I used to do that um, when I was, like, smoking cigarettes because okay. I'd be like, oh, busting for a smoke. Yeah, just get out the front, chaff a ciggy. <laughs> No, I just do it because I just want to get the fuck out of the airport. Fair enough. And I also just like traveling light in general. It just, I don't know. I, I went through a phase for a while where- um, I also like to have fresh underpants though. Well, I, yeah, I still <laughs> take fresh underpants. I just- I just Stuff do, them in your pocket. <laughs> no, I just do laundry more often. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's like instead of having to do laundry like once every two weeks, I just do it every week if yeah. I'm traveling for more than a week. Yeah. Um, I used to have this crazy live setup where I'd have like a drummer and then, oh, yeah, you've seen the- I have, yeah. Some we did iteration. some shows together at the Hi-Fi. So, the where? iteration, yeah, the iteration of the setup that you've seen was like just when we were, we were starting. starting yep. And then that, I, well, that drummer, we had a falling out yeah, and I, I stopped working with him and yeah. I stopped working, I started working with another drummer and then we sort of kept like iterating that setup until it was more and more intense to the point where like to do a show, I needed to have a sprinter van. Right. To like travel to the yeah, show sure. with, with enough. Yep. Like, and it was a crew of uh, like, fuck, I want to say six people. It was yeah, in the end. It was like me, the drummer, two visual guys slash stage hands and a tour manager. So, five people it took to, right. do, to do the show. And w- did you find that you would have more people at your shows for those specific shows or not really? No, not at all. And that's the thing is like it didn't. Financially like, makes sense. It didn't make any sense. Yeah, now I can just rock up with a USB stick. I get paid just <laughs> as much. There's just as many people at the show. Yeah, yeah. The people don't seem to look at the show any differently. They seem to see everything as the same thing. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, it's like it, the the reason um, yeah, you I, make a set more live is for yourself, really. Exactly. You've got to have. You've got to be enjoying it. You've got to be having fun, and you know you don't want to be bored yourself or unenthused with you know. Your material or the way you deliver it, right? How so you present the, your music. So the sure. trick is to really enjoy power walking through the airport. <laughs> that's the best. <laughs> yeah, that's the highlight of the of, of like going on tour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you just got to learn to love the, the power walk. <laughs> I love the power walk as well, but yeah, uh, yeah no, I definitely have checked in luggage. Uh, I just got 
a few too many bits and bobs that I use when I'm playing. Well, you use that fingerboard thing. Mm, oh, yeah, I've been using that for years and um, it just it's a really fun, super expressive way of just, you know, um, you know, just mashing around on, on top of, um, I suppose, um, parts of the um, show that are – that you know what you're going to do and it's just super expressive. Yeah, I didn't so realise awesome. that it wasn't just a MIDI controller because, like, no, I, where, yeah. whenever I've seen you play in the past, for those listening, um, Google, what is it, Harkin Continuum yeah. Fingerboard? Yeah, Harkin Continuum Fingerboard, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so I, every time I saw you play, I just thought it was a MIDI controller and I thought you were, like, maybe playing some key shit in to, like, a synth in Ableton no. plus, like, maybe using it as, like, an XY thing for some filters sure. or some shit. It's actually all developed, all onboard sounds are developed in Kima. Mm-hmm. Um, which is basically the holy grail of sound design. Um, it's got a very old-fashioned interface, the Kima system, but has some really advanced algorithms for morphing and, yeah, it's very, very cool. Have um, you actually ever used Kima, like the patching thing? No, I have not. I've not yeah. used it myself. Is it, is it node-based patching like Max MSP? Or- yeah, a little bit, yeah, I okay. think so. Um, but also time-based. It's a time-based. Um, so it's kind of like a, a door as well. Yes, but for even for the patches, their time, but it's oh wow, okay. yeah. So what, like program changes over time or something? Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah, so it does look very. I think it's very slow to learn. It's its own language in a sense, and um, and that sort of put me off because I was yeah, I was looking at getting into it probably about six or seven years ago, and I was sort of put off by the fact that it just looked like a huge uphill steep learning curve specifically just for its own environment mm-hmm. yeah a friend of mine frank riggio from italy he dived in about five years ago and he said to me yeah it, it, he was working on it every day for you know five to six hours a day learning this new environment and he said he's only scratching the surface after six months of pretty much oh, full-time wow. work into it. So I feel like that's kind of the same as probably learning anything new though, right? Like if, if it's not um, similar to anything you've done before, like six months is probably reasonable. Sure, but I he's mean- a pretty, you know, but for learning – most sound design tools or soft synths or even hardware synths, like it's not usually. But if it's something completely different, yeah. like let's say animation. Yeah, but it's not, it's still making. Still making sound. Exactly. And yeah. so it is, yeah. So, but, the, yeah, the Mind Buffer guys got one of those Capybara mm-hmm. Kyma systems. Capybara, yep. And I was like, why is it, like what's what's useful about it? And they, they were like, well, um, one of the things they did with it was try to make the sound of thunder using... 20,000 sine waves playing back at once, which right. is basically just insane additive synthesis, right? Yeah. So it's kind of how additive synthesis works. It just plays back sine waves. I was like, yeah, I suppose if, <laughs> if you want to do that, <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, it's quite conceptual and it's more suited for pure sound design and noise art than it is for, right. say, music making, music production. It's not, it's not often used as a tool for music production. My name on Tobin does, but his stuff is sort of bridging that gap between sound art and music as well. Mm-hmm. It, that's that almost seems like a thing you'd just do for yourself too, right? Like for that, sure, that level of sound design. It seems like that might just get lost on a lot of people too. For sure, of course. I heard um Virtual Riot saying in an interview recently, he was like, "If you have to explain to someone why the sound you made is cool, then it's a <laughs> shit song, basically." Yeah. And I kind of think that might be. Uh, almost getting to that point where, like, you have to almost explain to it, someone. But it sounds cool. different in Kima. Like, Kima it has does. its own unique sound and, and way of, of uh, morphing and so forth. And and this and it does sound amazing. It really does. Yeah, I mean, Amon Tobin sounds very unique. 
Oh, for sure. And you listen to like most Hollywood blockbusters, most of the sound design is done in a lot lot of it's done in Kima. Really? Yeah. Uh, A lot of the Hollywood blockbusters I feel like is just packs, like sample packs, right? No, a lot of the stuff is, yeah, no, I know like, for example, like Transformers is like in- Like Kima. Yeah. Really? I thought it was like Foley and layering and stuff. Yeah, no, a lot of it's Kin Kima, yeah. A lot of sound design houses, yeah, they use that. It's not obviously not the only thing they use, but it's one of many toolkits. So I went to, um, I did a, I worked on that Nick Cage film and I worked at Sonic Pool post-production house in LA for about, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like a month maybe or something, two months or something. And I was like working in the editing room with the film editors and the director, just basically like, uh, you know, making short pieces of music and then shooting them straight to the director and um, giving the film editors it was kind of like a so we could back and forth really yeah, quickly. sure like so they you would make sure you're on the right trajectory right, on the same like, page yeah so they as they were like getting a scene edited together i was like passing them whips in a dropbox folder yeah, cool. that they could drop in and stuff nice but the sound design was being done in another room mm-hmm. but literally that guy was just pulling shit out of packs and like, right so it's like there was, so there's more sound collage yeah like, pretty much and mixing to some degree too like yeah you know, putting- but i think yeah i mean the pressure's on working in that space in terms of time frames mm-hmm. and you like you think about you've got to quickly bash out foley or or sound design super super quickly and efficiently mm-hmm. and you know like a two-hour film is there's a lot of specific single one shots and sounds that need to be added to, the, to yeah. make that feel immersive and realistic yeah and you know that's that's all that probably they've got time for in- well that's a, yeah and also i think um there just wasn't a lot of budget for that film it was a pretty sure. low, low budget film yeah. in general yeah exactly um yeah probably if they had a huge like i'm assuming transformers is probably not mm. just one guy doing the sound design exactly i got like a team for that yeah I think mum and dad, the all the composition was just me and all the sound design was just one yeah. guy. And then yep. the whole thing was edited just by two people. Right. Nice. But yeah, the post-production was a small-ass team. It's crazy to think that films can be made with <laughs> such a small amount of people in yep. post. Also, the other thing I found crazy is like when you're editing a film down, like you obviously they go out and shoot all the stuff. But then using that shot material, you can kind of um, order it in such a way and cut it in such a way to, to sort of tell any story you want. Right, so you, you're saying it can be manipulated to sort of achieve a different outcome or feeling. It or, could have yeah. just it could have easily been a comedy, you know, yeah. <laughs> like okay. instead of a horror. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, I mean, well, yeah. think about it. Like, if, yeah, you, if sure. you play a f- piece of film backwards yeah. of somebody killing somebody, it could tell the story of them resuscitating somebody, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> it might maybe. look a bit weird. But. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so you've moved to San Francisco just recently. How many, yeah. How are you digging the SF vibes? It's good. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, I like the weather. Yeah, okay. Colorado gets a bit cold. Oh man, yeah, I was there um, late last year, and it was just like in October, and they had like sixteen inches of snow in like two days, and it's yeah. like insane. Dude, we had a day there last year that was a seventy degree swing day. Wow, like I don't know what that is in Celsius. I want to say like thirty degrees, maybe. Mm, that's pretty common actually in um, in Victoria where. Yeah, thirty degree swing day. Absolutely, yeah. We oh, go shit. from often on those crazy um, extreme fire danger days. It goes from like low forties Celsius, which is like whatever one hundred and ten or something, and then swings down to no, it swings down to like eight seventeen eighteen. So yeah, oh, not, yeah, and that happens quite regularly when you get that southwesterly change, and that's what actually makes that part of the country so. Um, such a high fire risk because you get these driving northerlies with these hu- with these huge heat coming from the desert, right? And then 
what happens in the in the actual fire front is like the shape of a spearhead, and then the wind you get this chronic wind change and it spins around about uh, probably 120 degrees, and that happens every time on these extreme hot days. And then the fire front, rather than being a small like spearheaded fire front, the fire front then is suddenly this huge fire front, and it's like you know 15, 20 times in size, and then the fire like races up on that on that um you know southwesterly change and that's what happened on black saturday which took out my property 2009 right but you bought it after i did yeah and i built so i bought a bush block that had been absolutely incinerated from the black saturday fires and then went about building a full house and studio from scratch there was no power no water no septic system nothing i bought a full-on developed us like a a full um, house and property and the whole system. Yeah, your scratch. house is sick, man. I like the curved roof. Yeah, it's sort of like a convex concave work, um, uh, radius. So I designed the, sh- the, f- the shape, the radiuses of those curves on the roof at exactly what I could spring curve the um, corrugated um, sheet roofing material mm-hmm. but without losing um, the warranty on the – voiding the warranty on the material. Okay. So that was a 10-metre radius. Mm-hmm. So I used worked with that constraint and then designed the form of Meaning it. Meaning, if your roof gets fucked, you can just well, no, it just means that if a, uh, if something happens down the track, then they're not going to warrant the going to yeah, yeah the warranty is not going to be. But, but as it stands, it is under warranty. Yes, that's right because it's cool. below that um, that yeah specification. But yeah, and then the rest of the house is rammed earth, which is awesome. What is rammed earth? Um, so we used, it can be a, um, a whole bunch of different like rock aggregates. We used sandstone because like there's a quarry close to our house, about like 10 mile away. And did you ram it all yourself? Yeah. So I bought oh, a wow. bobcat for to do it and um, you set up form work, which is basically like um, like form ply, plywood um, with a steel external frame and then it has all thread bolts um, to stop the side walls from splaying out and then you do it up in four courses per lift and then the formwork stacks on top of it itself and it has like um, scaffolding that clips into the side as well. So as you go build up the length, the height of the wall, like the scaffolding, you're, you're at the right ergonomic height to be tamping it down. You use these pneumatic tamps which are basically like um, – a jackhammer with a flat cylinder on the end and that's hooked up to a huge diesel air compressor and um yeah basically uh you do a section of wall in a day and you don't want to have any cold joints so you've got to work out where your expansion joints are going to be uh, before you get started and you also run all the conduit for your powerpoints light switches and all that stuff like as you're building the wall as you're doing as you're going so you run the so conduit all the wall. of your walls are just made out of like material crushed sandstone Right, so it's stuff that's like from the area. It's and- the same stuff we use on the driveway at our house, yeah, right. and it is incredibly cheap. I think it was like thirty Australian dollars per cube cubic meter, mm-hmm. um, which is about one point three ton or whatever. And so that's like you know it's nothing. The the, the I think it was one hundred and twenty. We used around one hundred and twenty tons of material in the walls uh, and but more expensive is just the cement we, we used about two bags of off-white cement per bobcat bucket to get the right consistency and it's called stabilized rammed earth right how did you like un- know how to build a house um i studied industrial design at uni um and also i suppose came from uh, <laughs> like my dad built the house that i grew up in which was a mud brick house sort of mm-hmm. similar in terms of 
like just thermal mass and stuff, but it's quite different. It's much more labor intensive mm-hmm. where you actually have to make the bricks and then you have to store the um set them in the sun so they dry and rotate them and then you have to lay them, then you have to render them. Whereas a rammed earth, you just pound it down mm-hmm. and then add more pound, keep pounding, and then <laughs> at the end of the day you strip the formwork off. That's the cool thing about rammed earth. You strip the formwork off and the job is done right. forever and should last hundreds of years. Wow, like okay. if it's not, you know, um, where we are, we're, you know, we're on a huge old tectonic plate in Australia so we don't have very many earthquakes at all. Right. So it's pretty sound for that sort of building. Why, why do you reckon more people just don't build their houses that way? Uh, it's becoming so, way more popular. Okay. And it was popular. like Because, of, because it's like logistically cheaper and all that sort of stuff? Um, why it's getting, becoming more popular? It's, yeah. it's seen as um, it is hard yakka to do. Okay. So it is actually expensive right, to yeah, get it. That's probably a word we should explain. Hard, hard yakka. Hard, <laughs> hard work. Hard, <laughs> hard yakka. Is yakka just work? <laughs> yakka. Yeah, hard yakka's work. Does anybody yeah. ever say in Australia, "I'm going to yakka"? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Just got back from yakka. It only works with hard in the front right, right. or soft yakka. I've never heard of that. It doesn't no really work. <laughs> um, so yeah, rammed earth. I think if you were to pay a crew to do it, uh, it's really expensive. Like it's right. one of the most expensive per square foot wall <laughs> um, systems to pay a crew to do because it is such. You know, it is labour-intensive. But, um, yeah, I did it incredibly cheaply. It ended up being cheaper than, like, plaster, you, drywall. You did all the labour yourself, right? Yeah, I had actually a guy running the team. We used his formwork, and he'd been doing it for 20 years every day. Okay. And so we he knew what to do. He was just an earth pounder. Earth pounder, yeah. So, But, I mean, going back, I did get, I suppose, being conjuring the skills for designing a home for myself. Um, yes, I studied industrial design, worked as a product and furniture designer for a bunch of years mm-hmm. while still always doing music, but I was doing that as well um, until music sort of naturally took over. Um, around the time that I released my first album, actually, around 2004. What, which album was that? Uh, Megafauna. Okay. Yep. Yeah. As was Bill, that yeah. after Gumtree or before? That was on Gumtree, but I released Gumtree. Wait, you mean Gumtree was on that? Sorry, yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, uh, yeah, that was the first track I heard of yours. Okay. Around that time, were you listening to electronic music around then? Yeah, I think I, I think I heard that one on MySpace. Yeah, yeah, and was yeah, like oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely MySpace. It's classic, isn't it? That was the thing back in the day. Yeah, I found so much shit on MySpace. Um, I discovered the mollusk through MySpace. Yeah, well, that was yeah. quite a few years later, but yeah, yeah, yeah two thousand and seven yeah. or eight. Or Hefty output. Yeah, yeah, I discovered them on MySpace. Right. Um, well, they were all playing those like Psytrance doofs in. In Victoria and, yeah, those yeah, guys. Yeah, exactly. Classic crew. Yeah, I think I started discovering all that shit around, like, 2007 or maybe even earlier, 2006 maybe. Yeah. When did you start writing music then? I started, well, like, electronic music. Yeah. Probably around 2007. Yeah. Yeah. And I put my first album out in 2008, which is all, no longer on the internet because- Oh, really? Well, you took yeah. it off? Yeah, I mean, I'd only been producing for like maybe two years. So you were like, I'm not showing that to the world anymore. Yeah, I mean, at the time I was real proud of it. But <laughs> yeah, listening yeah. to it now, I'm like, I don't know about that. <laughs> I feel like that about my older stuff as well. About but then megafauna and stuff. Yeah, but it's sort of like it is what it is. It was that thing at that time. I, I still get a lot of people like super stoked on that older stuff, probably because mm-hmm. it's quite uninhibited and. You know, there was nowhere when I was making that music. There was nowhere to, st- there was no SAE or nowhere to study. Mm. 
you know, that's a, yeah, electronic that's music production. Thing, yeah. Now there's so much more information about it. So it was so freeform, freestyle. You just like just figuring it out. Figuring, yeah, there was no yeah. tutorials, nothing. There is something kind of special, I think, about my old shit too. For that reason, mm. it's like, yeah, like you said, uninhibited by like too much information. Yeah, like too like right ways and wrong ways to do shit. Mm-hmm. Like at the time, you're just sort of like, is this the right way to do shit, or is there a better? Yeah, way to and do you it? don't care if it's the right or the wrong way. It's just what makes sense or what what sounds good to you at that moment in time. And right. I still, still to this day, that's sort of how I operate in terms of yeah. my production. I don't really, yeah, I don't watch tutorials on online. I don't uh, even listen to all that much electronic music. I just, um, I just enjoy the process in my own studio with the own my own technique that I've developed, which you know is laborious. Um, but I actually enjoy the process of it rather than trying to be the most efficient way of smashing out a track definitely music has to be fun yeah if it's not fun that's how i think a lot of producers get stuck in this whole like can't finish tracks mindset or they get stuck with you know fucking i find there's there is a bit of a envelope curve or or multi-envelope curve to the excitement factor with like when you you know when you're starting a new track i find like when the track's in its infancy is like that super excitement phase that honeymoon phase right and you're like oh i'm so stoked on this This is weird you know and getting and and vibing on it and then there's this there's very often there's that sort of like challenging middle section where you're really trying to get different parts of tracks or there's uh, the- Trying to write a B section or whatever. Yeah, and and making it- Or you've written an A and a B section, but you've done them sort of often. I write A and B sections, but I get so engrossed in the B section, I forget if it actually relates to the A section at all. Right, right. And then I'm like, fuck, now I've got to make them somehow work together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, your tracks sometimes have interesting shit. I've, I've noticed in the middle where you in- tracks where you've probably done that yeah. in the middle there's just like some big sweep key change thing yeah, and then yeah like, like oh, how am i gonna bridge these two <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just like all right sound design fade degree situation yep, and then totally a whole new thing yeah that's kind of sick though because i think like one of the things i don't like about electronic music is when it all sounds too much the same and i feel like that happens quite often in sets like you'll go watch somebody play a set and if they're like a deep dubstep artist or something like that and they're just playing like all their own music quite often like 20 to 30 minutes in the set i'm like it all sort sounds of just, the same it's like gray you know like even if at the start mm. it sounded fresh yeah after a while if you just keep playing that sort of shit it just starts to sound gray in my opinion mm. same with like some rhythm sets are susceptible to this and like mm. some like psytrance is quite susceptible. probably anything that is genreified so heavily that is specifically a you know a genre music that right yeah but yeah it's good i think to both in tracks and in sets kind of paint with like very contrasting colors mm-hmm. like having you know, absolutely really for sure bright thoroughly red agree with that shit next to like really bright blue sounding shit or something yeah and stylistically i mean yeah i think my sets move around quite a lot in terms of are they all set, sort of all the track i only play my own music so i'm sort of limited in terms of from that perspective but all my songs yeah i mean they definitely have a certain vibe to them but they're all like the sets go from <coughs> real down tempo to sort of like fast up-tempo klezmer weirdness to you know there's a lot of different variations stylistically key changes and vibes mm-hmm. so yeah and that keeps it interesting for me and hopefully for people listening too right right um are you comfortable talking about your uh 10-year ban yeah i could do that all right sweet 
Um, yeah, well, where do you want to start with so, that? Share what you're comfortable with. Yeah, no worries. Um, I mean, I'm assuming you haven't shared that story so publicly yet. Uh, yeah, I got um, Radio National did an interview with me back in Australia, uh, which is one of the biggest sort of radio station, radio programs and radio mm-hmm. stations in, in Australia. Um, yeah, I did multiple interviews on different radios back in 2000, so the end of 2007. And you probably really. did like a, I think I remember reading a Facebook post maybe about it. Oh, it? yeah, and um, people did, one person did their master's or no, might have been a doctorate um, or master's um, journalism report on it. And, yeah, so, no, it's been out there, so, no, there's no problem. So, basically, in 2007, um, I was crossing the border, heading from, I just played a set at the Burning Man decompression party in Portland and I was heading over the border to go and hang out with my buddies in the studio uh, in the Sunshine Coast in Canada, mm-hmm. Fungineers, who are okay. awesome beatboxing puppeteers, super bonkers, legendary crew. Mm-hmm. And I was helping them write an album. Um, and so, yeah, I was helping them in their studio and was heading up uh, driving across the border, I was in my friend's, driving my friend's driving van. driving from Portland or yeah. to Canada? Yeah, that's okay. right. So going north out of the US. Okay. And uh, I was with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife actually, mm-hmm. and I knew we were we would um, be pulled over. We were driving a black van, looked like a bunch of hippies. She had like red long red dreads and, you know, whatever. So I was like, we'd definitely be a target. Um, so anyway, so we're crossing the border and um, – We'd, uh, yeah, we had a camera with some photos of some cannabis on it. So you didn't even have weed? No, no, no. We had some photos of some cannabis that was medicinal, medi-marijuana, they called it back in the mid-2000s. Right. Um, was the, the photo was just like a picture of you with some plants, right? Not plants, just weed on a table. Oh, it's just you standing next to weed on a table. We were just sitting down, and there was. We actually wrote "Happy Birthday" and some buds for a friend of um, Annie's good friend. Okay, and took a photo of it. And how much weed was it? You I don't know. Maybe like an ounce or two, a couple of. So like not even that much. A couple of ounces, maybe. I don't know. And so, um, yeah. So anyway, I knew they were on there, and so I turned to Annie as we were driving up, and I said, "Oh, can you delete those photos?" And she was like, uh, "Yeah, cool. Got the car." I was driving, so I wasn't watching what she was doing, but she got the camera out and said, you know, and then we went through a really beautiful forest or whatever just before the border and she got the camera out and took a photo, but she hadn't actually deleted the photos. She just took the card out of the camera and then put it back in. Oh, right. You know, just vaguing out or whatever, <laughs> took a photo. So when we got there, I was like, yeah, cool. Um, and then sure enough, like we got pulled out of, the cars and questioned, took it, taken into a room, and they said we're going to search your cars. And I was like, you know, okay, fair enough. And sure enough, they found the camera. Sure enough, they turned it on. Sure enough, they've scrolled through it and found the photo. <laughs> and um, and then you know they made us wait for hours, uh, and then finally it came and said, oh, we're not letting you into country we think you're going to be working or they made up some bullshit reason basically they think you're going to be working because you had a photo of weed on no because they were trying to just not let us in they just came up with they they pointed to a scrapbook that annie had and had someone's phone number and said look there's an evidence that you're going to be working we're like what that is (laughs) that's that's a reach okay but um yes absolute bollocks but anyway so but the thing is, we hadn't left U.S. soil. But what they did is they made us go into Canada 
and then turn around and go through back into the US entry point. Mm-hmm. And then they were there waiting. Um, they had, um, they were like, dude, all right, we've, they had the cards, cards to the camera. So the US side had given back our camera without the card in it and mm-hmm. they left the card on the US side. So legally they weren't allowed to do that. We found out later on. Uh-huh. Anyway, um, they pulled us in. They put. They're like, "All right, well, we're gonna we're gonna impact you. Lose the car if we find any drugs and blah blah blah." They didn't find. They put dogs through the car. They pulled the whole car apart. They found nothing because we had nothing. Right. We yeah. And um, then they told Annie, um, "Yep, you're free to go um, because she's a she's got a US passport." Right. Okay. But because I have an Australian passport, they said, "Well, <laughs> we're gonna um, we're gonna deport you. We don't want your." Co- kind in our country and they were like interrogated me for like three hours and then had me in a holding cell and that was bad enough but like that what, was what kind of stuff were they asking you in the oh where's the grow man you know and all this shit <laughs> and all. I was like dude it was medicinal cannabis the guys had certificates to grow it like right, right. what's the problem it was in northern cali like and um but they were like we don't believe you you know and they're just like they're pretty there was like five of them in the room like all like anything I said, I'd get denounced straight away. That's right. bullshit. You know, <laughs> four, five of them, I was sitting there, five of them standing over me literally. Yeah, wow. So it's pretty like, you know. Pretty intimidating. It was intimidating and they just wouldn't let anything I said float. You know, they were just like, that's bullshit. Just you know? like anything you said that they didn't want you to say. That exactly. Like, they just, yep, yeah. they just like. So they clearly like, it, they had a clear agenda for whatever reason and they were just trying to like. Absolutely. Make, just trying to make you say what they wanted you to say. Yeah. And, and I didn't, you know, I just told them the exact truth and then they said, all right, well, we don't want you in our country anymore. You're going to get deported. I was like, that was bad enough. Yeah, that was a complete lie. And they told Annie that as well. <laughs> and, um, then they put me in basically like steel box on the back of this truck in handcuffs and drove me. They said I was going to the airport and so I got to this facility about an hour or so, hour and a half, two hours or whatever it was um, later and, you know, there was like uh, there wasn't really a window in the back so I couldn't really see very well but, you know, I could. there was doors opening and driving, the, the vehicle was driving and I thought it was driving into the airport. And it was and then I got put into a holding cell for like fourteen or sixteen hours overnight, no food. Sorry, there was they threw a sandwich to us, but the bread was green with mold on it. Oh fuck. Yeah, and it was there was no heating in there. I was in a room, like it was like a holding cell room with like sixteen Mexican dudes who'd like So you were like clearly in jail. Yeah, I was, but I thought I was still at the airport at this stage. Right, okay. Right? I, and no one had said a single word after, you know. Um, and then, uh, like, the next morning, it was fucking freezing. I think it was, like, snowing outside and it was, like, no heating in there and freezing. Anyway, they've um, the next sort of midday or something, the next day they come in, um, guy come, comes in and says, all right, and pulls us into another room, says, all right, everyone stripped down naked. I'm like what the fuck is going on here? I'm meant to be getting deported today and they're like, sorry, sir, I can't, you know, talk to you about anything. And so they put me, stripped me down naked, put me in a jumpsuit and I'm like, whoa, what the fuck is happening? And then they gave me, a, they give everyone a medical and they give you like a, um, a full body X-ray without any protection on your balls or anything. It was super oh, fucked wow. up. And to check if you've got tuberculosis, tuberculosis in your lungs and whatever. Anyway, the doctor was the first person to, like, actually answer a question about what, where the fuck I, am I. 
Yeah, and it's just like you're in jail. No, he said, oh, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but no, you're in immigration, de- Northwest Detention Centre, immigration detention jail. Oh, Jesus. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I said, well, I'm meant to get deported today. What the? F- I thought I was at the airport. He said, sorry, the minimum stay is three weeks. Oh, fuck. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And just life, you know, just like disintegrated into like a million fragments and just shattered on the floor. It's just I was like devastated. And I was like, what the fuck? And then I walked, got ushered through this warren of the, you know, like a rabbit warren of different hallways and door security doors and then to the door that was the entrance to my um, room, my cell or whatever, opened up the door and there's just a chanting erupts of, kuyo, 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 chanting literally and I look in there and I'm like holy fucking shit and there was like 70 dudes chanting at me Jesus. walking in the door I'm like what the fuck I only found out later like several days later it's sort of like a come here little boy sort of like intimidation right, sort right. of chant when someone is, new comes is in that the room. Mex- uh, Spanish or not Spanish yeah yeah okay and um yeah so it was pretty fucked up and yeah it took me a few days to um to, I didn't make eye contact with anyone for a, for the first few days because, like, if you get um, – if someone doesn't like the look of you or doesn't like you for whatever reason and they come and smash you in the back of the head from behind, then you both go to the hole, which is solitary confinement. Right. For like, Dude, it's crazy, right, that in jail where, like, you have fucking basically no human rights and shit, there is, like, a worst thing you can do to people, which is, like, take them away from other humans. Yeah. But this is fucked up. Like, if you are an, uh, if you are a serial killer or rapist or whatever in, in the US, you get your a cell to yourself or with an, another friend, you're able to have books, a TV, computer, musical instruments. You get two hours a day of rec, which is outside natural sunlight. Right, this place was two hours a week oh, fuck. of natural sunlight. So it this is, is like worse than jail? Way worse. There were 70 dudes in my room. Jesus. And a lot of them have been, it's like a- so You like had a, you all had beds, right? You know? Yeah, there's bunks. It's like the size of a basketball court, basically. Okay. And there's bunks, uh, no no doors on the toilets, so there's like no cases of like rape and shit like that. And there's like officers in there all the time. They keep you dumbed down by keeping you super exhausted. Like it's lights out at like midnight and then they wake you up at 5 or 4.30 in the morning every morning right, and you have to get out of bed and queue up to get your refried beans for breakfast. Fuck. And um, it is so super, super. Um, so everyone's just tired and burnt out. Of- t- everyone's tired. So they're easier to be manipulated when they're in that exhausted right, state. Right, you're just like, I don't give a fucking. Oh, they're just, everyone's just, yeah. Right. Um, so after a few days, I started um, yeah, I sort of made some friends, made some friends with two Russian guys, uh, an Irish guy and some Filipino dudes. The two Filipino guys actually were in limbo land because the Philippines don't accept deportees, like nationals of their own country. Like if that, you get deported from another country back to the Philippines, they're like, oh, you must have fucked up and they don't you, They you. don't accept their own people back after being deported. Surely there's no. got to be some circumstances no. where that's no. not the case, right? That's their blanket rule. It's so fucking oh, fucked wow. up. So there's been people in my – there was people in my cell that have been there for several years, like two oh, and shit. a half years, still not told in that how room, they can get out. Yep. In the room of seven Same room. Yep. people. Yep. Jesus, fuck. How they were told how they so, can so get so out the of there. One like- dude was like cutting his finger and drawing a blood cross on his forehead every day. Oh, fuck. And it's like mental, man, because like so, – So for people like who are in that position – 
what's the like oh, the, what's the end game? They I just, don't know. They just get stuck there. Yeah, I don't know. Jesus. Yeah, it was so fucked up. Oh, fucked. And um, I was pretty lucky. I was the first Australian ever to be put in this facility and also the first person to get out of there in less than the three-week standard minimum stay. Yeah, so, so what, how did you get out? Um, a friend of mine, Brassy, who's like one of my closest best mates, he um, he heard. So after a few days, actually, a guy, an El Salvadorian sleeping on a bunk opposite me, saw that I was pretty like upset and fucked up, fucked up. So he passed me out of his sock. He pulled like a calling card. And um, and there was a there's a phone in the room, um, so I went down and made a phone call, called Annie. Like a phone in the room of seventy. Yeah. So you, anyone can use that phone at any time. But you have to have you have to have money to buy to, to buy inventory, and to uh, the to get the inventory you need to have your money that you were when you were put in this facility, mm-hmm. and it takes weeks or months to be able to get through that process of using any money that you had in your wallet right. to then use inventory, and then when you order the inventory, it takes a week. So there was no way I was going to get it. So they, they try and slow the whole process down. The whole process slowed down. I'll get to that. But, yeah, so yeah. I made a call and- um, So this guy had, like, purchased this car, this car yeah. to call? Yeah, so I, he just said make it 30 seconds or less. So, and I was like, okay. okay so cool. I called up and I called Annie and she was like, right, I'm still in- Portland. Um, she thought I was like must have already been back in Australia or something, and I was like, "No, I'm, I'm in, um, yeah, I'm in Tacoma Maximum Security Immigration Jail, and I'm going to be here for weeks minimum, you know." And she's like, "What the? F- oh my god, you know." And so that she was pretty bamboozled, and so she called my family, and my father and my brother both called the Australian consulate in the US and they both told um, my brother and my father on two different conversations with two different people that they had been to visit me in person. Right. It's a complete lie. Wow. And it come, yeah, the, I mean, the whole system is so fucked up because it's a privatised jail. Which is like I think the case for every prison in America, right? Yeah, this is, but these, these ones were owned by Halliburton. Well, right. Who is Halliburton? Halliburton is like the company that manufacture. They're the company of war, basically. They oh, manufacture all the warheads. They do. They even make like the military's clothing. They manufacture. Uh, they do all the cleanup after war. Uh, Dick Cheney uh, was the largest shareholder of um, Halliburton during this time I was there, and he was the vice president of the US. Oh, fuck. And he was the biggest shareholder of the prison, the immigration jail. So he has a hugely vested interest for people to be So in after 9-11, they passed the Patriot Act, uh-huh. which allowed them to basically allow people to hold people without uh, charge, without any criminal charge. And so basically, and they were getting $200 a day subsidised per inmate. So every day you were there, this company was making 200 bucks Off. Yep, of How do government they make the money. Like, where's that? The money? government gives them the money okay. per inmate, so and they Dick are. Dick Cheney was the vice president. Yep. He controls like the money. He was giving himself money, basically. Yep. Jesus. Yeah, that's how corrupt it is. And if you've been in this facility for six months or, or more, you're eligible to work for a dollar a day. Oh, nice. That's and that idea. people do it because they don't. They stop going insane because. Um, yeah, at that point, you probably just want something to do anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, if their jails aren't at full capacity, they're not making as much profit as what they could be. Mm-hmm. And when they have a spare, when they finally have to deport someone or or someone leaves the facility, they have a spare bed. They tell the ICE officers working the border, "We've got a spare bed in this facility. 
and they'll find someone and they don't even have to find anyone that has done anything criminally wrong like me. Right. And it was only like weasel a situation out where you have yeah. to be in there for a minute or something. Yeah, and I was I got out of there because uh, my friend uh, I went and had a he flew up from he was living in San Francisco. Uh, he flew up uh, to Seattle, hired a car, drove down to Tacoma, and he had I had a visitation, you know, through the wall of glass with the telephone, right. old telephone handle, and I was just like, dude, you've got to fucking help me. You got to go and speak to the ice. Um, the ice manager of this facility um and so he did he went and went into his office and just said i'm not leaving here until this guy is like his flight is booked out of here and he's definitely going because this is just he has done nothing wrong this is absolute bullshit and the ice manager agreed with him he said yeah no he shouldn't be in here and i actually saw him on day 10 the last day when i was leaving um, the ice manager? Yeah, the manager of the whole facility. Right. Saw him in the hallway and he stopped me and said, oh, you're so-and-so, yeah, yeah I, saw your, I saw your file um, and, yeah, you shouldn't have been in here. And I was like, well, how come? And he said, well, yeah, you can't. they can't share material across the border like what they did. And it's just, you know, uh, such a ridiculous reason. They walked me, for, like, so I caught a flight, you know, in handcuffs on a little flight to San Francisco from Tacoma. Wait, then, you're, you're on the plane with handcuffs? Yeah. Jesus. And then and then they uh, put me in handcuffs again, changed handcuffs when I got to San Francisco. They walked me through SFO and I walked past like a newsstand, like whatever, and there's like High Times magazine with like <laughs> photos of weed on there. And the and I just like turned to the dude like who was like escorting me like check this out this is ridiculous. So, so the guy who was escorting you had to take the flight with you as well. Yeah, no, he ch- he gave me to a different person when I arrived there. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, but he was on the plane from yeah. Tacoma or yep. Seattle yep. to SFO. Yep. Wow. And then when I got onto the international flight, no, I was just like, did they put you in a nice seat? I actually was sitting next to my partner. Then she was she had and he was on the same flight. Yeah, Sebrasi had worked out with her, and she got. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I was last on the plane or whatever. Wow. And, uh, yeah, she was there, so I was like, oh, my God. Like, sat next to her, broke down, and I was like, fucking full on. But, yeah, it's a pretty rough experience, and that is basically, in a nutshell, why I haven't been playing shows in the US for 12 years. Right. <laughs> so it's <laughs> a bit of a downer. Right, it was pretty because, fucked um, because I was yeah. starting to do well over here in the mid-2000s, yeah. starting to blow up, and then just to be barred from – the scene. So through that rough. whole experience, the resulting factor was you spent ten days in the uh, detention center. <laughs> the then they- day they pull me out, they told me, uh, "Look, you've got to." Uh, they said I had a visitation. Okay, and I was like, oh, "Okay," so I didn't get to say goodbye to any of the people that I'd met, you know, in there that I'd be hanging out with twenty four hours a day for ten days. Right. Uh, I went to the visitation room. There's no one there, and then they're like, "No, no, go into this room." And I'm going to this room. They're like, "Cool, you're going now." I'm like, "What?" And so they do that so no one, so there's no big hoo-ha in the room. This guy's, yeah. le- you know. Okay. And um, they pulled, they held me in this whole little tiny little cubicle like a phone box mm-hmm. for like three hours. Oh, wow. And then they pulled me out and it's glass so I could see the office. And then they finally pulled me out and they said, you've got 15 seconds to sign these documents. Otherwise, you're going to miss your flight and this is your only way out of here. And I'm like, what? And I look through and there's like 30 pages to sign. <laughs> they don't have time to read anything. Right. So he's like, you do anything at that stage to get out of there. Totally, yeah. No matter what you'll sign, no matter what, you don't care. Right. So, yeah, 
um, signed it all and then- And basically that said, you can't come in for 10 years. Yeah. The, well, the dude actually was like, he had he had a piece of paper. He had no idea why I was in there. He didn't know my case at all. And he had like six months, one year, two year, five year, and 10 year. And he just like, went straight to the 10 year and marked that. Oh, fuck. <laughs> it's just like- Like, and then made you sign it? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So, yeah, so that ran out and then now you've got a visa again. So now, yeah, that ran out and finally, um, yeah, I mentioned to Dave Tipper, who's like a close friend from, you know, for many years, uh, you know, if there's anyone you know that might be able to help us sort of like, um, you know, organise some shows and so forth. You know, I've had a lot of interest over the, you know, 12 years I've been banned, 10 years I've been banned. like, well, just so happens. <laughs> so I- his manager, Dave Vella, basically did, really helped me out a lot and um, sort of put together a whole bunch of shows and and all the supporting material for my O1 visa. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, so that was all cool. When I went to, when I went to the, um, the American Embassy in Melbourne to do the – you know, I got the O1 visa, no problems, no questions asked. But then when I went to do the, we had like thir- a thirty date tour organised, um, sort of, yeah, about a year and a half ago, whenever it was now. And I went to do the interview, and they're like, "Oh, you've got the wrong police check. We needed the fingerprinted check, which they didn't say." So then they you I needed did, fingerprints. Yeah, or they just I don't know. They just made up an excuse. Yeah, to, I've never needed fingerprints for my O1. Yeah. No, I know they didn't say that. Yeah. They just made they just made it up on the spot. Yeah, so then I had to count. I said, "Oh, I'm gonna have to if I can't." And they said, "I said, well, cool. I'll go and get it like this week and bring it back." And they said, "Yeah, it'll be about a four to five month wait once you submit it." I'm like, "What?" Yeah. So I had to cancel that tour after you know I've been waiting for so long. Yeah. So the first show back was um, the yeah support slot for Tipper for the Tipper and Friends show that's at King's the, Theatre. Right, that's one of the things that people don't really understand. Right, is um. You can't get a visa unless you have like sort of work ready to go. Yeah, and so it has like, to be sort of. It's yeah, you have to do everything backwards. It's like you have to sort of have the shows booked and then get your visa. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't realize that. And then when they constantly see artists like yourself or like Culprit has done this a few times, where they like book all the shows and then all of a sudden the visa doesn't come through and mm. they're like, "Well, f- I can't do the fucking shows." Yeah, and then people sort of like. Pass them out. Blame blame it on the artist a little I bit. I know. They're like, why'd you cancel it? It's like, yeah. dude, it's really complicated. You yeah. Don't know how much more complicated. No, exactly. And more complicated for me because of that. Especially, yeah, yeah. for sure. If you got like something like that on. But you? now, so it's interesting now every time I, because I'm living in Melbourne, I've got a family in, out of Melbourne in, in the bush where I've built my house. Um, so I only come over for shows and try and come be succinct when I do come over for a weekend or a couple of weekends or whatever. Um, and, um, so it means I'm doing a lot of in and out through, you know, yeah, across the border and cut, yeah, and going through, um, and so basically through immigration, I still, I have to go to the secondary, the dunce room, I have to go to secondary right. every time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's annoying. It's fine. It's just a, you know, it is what it is. It's not, I'm not, it was stressful the first few times. But um, now it's just like oh, I just have to do it. It's part of the process, but it's annoying because you know you've usually got connecting flights, right? And you know every second or third one is missed because there's a fucking queue in the secondary or whatever. Yeah. Well, at this point, you know that you have to do it, so you can probably just book the connections to be that's it a couple yeah. of hours away from the yeah. landing one or something. Yeah. So yeah. how many 
times do you have to come here this year? Because I remember you said towards the end of last year you had to come five or six times. Yeah, last so year I, came, I went eight. I think I did eight trips in 12 months last year back and forward and I did five in four and a half months or five months, which five, that's ten flights across the Pacific. Yeah, it's fucked. <laughs> yeah, it's a mission. You, um, who are you flying with mostly when you do Qantas. So. And are you, and are you um, able to take all of those miles and like apply them to something? Uh, yeah, you get like you can get upgrades or free. They're not very good in terms of points. It's a bit of a fallacy. The whole points thing. Dude, it's just to get you. It's too. it's for brand loyalty that they're right. trying to do it. Yeah, exactly. And it's always better. It's always better to just get a cheaper flight if you can find one. Right. The good thing, however, Qantas actually f- the biggest carrier for across the Pacific from Australia to right. to the West Coast. So they are the better one to go with. The, the planes are pretty good. The service is good. The food's reasonable. Um, but the good thing is that they the lounges, that is really the main benefit I find, and the points are pretty bullshit, you know. Yep. Yeah. So um, I um I I'm generally with United, and they allow you to get this like credit card, and the credit card has like whatever sixty thousand points or some shit that goes to your account. But then you find out there's like two different kinds of points. There's like normal points that you get from like flights, which are called like premier qualifying points. Oh, really? That's so sketchy. And yeah. then there's another kind of point that's just called like just points. <laughs> okay, worth, worth 0.0001 of a cent or something. Oh, they're not really worth anything. No. <laughs> literally all you can do with them is like put them towards money for flights, but it doesn't like actually add to your status. You no, no, it won't add to your status. That's right. Yeah. The, you have to actually take the flights. Right. So you can use it for like buying flights, but you can't, it doesn't, yeah, you have to actually spend money with the airline to get the actual real points that add to your status, which allow you to get like to the next tiers to get upgrades and shit. Yeah. Yeah, fucking flying sucks. It does, man. I've got f- this little three-week mission around is like 14 flights, individual flights in like three weeks. It's like, oh, man, yeah. particularly during this time with the coronavirus going on right. and I've had to change my – because I'm on the last – my last show is in Portland and then I've got to fly to Tel Aviv, but I've got to – yeah, it's a mission to get there Got to, and then, you know, coming home from Tel Aviv, usually I go through Hong Kong, I can't do that, so I've got to go to up to Athens and then across to Doha and it's 50 hours from Portland to get home by – via Tel Aviv of flying and just the transit time. Right, right. Dude, I'm so bad with history. Mm. Like the other day when you were telling me about like the full Irish and British history. Yeah, yeah, because you were like the same people when you because you said you did a DNA test and and it comes up as English-Irish. I'm like, they're completely different people. Yeah. The Celts are very, very different like um, bloodline. As far as DNA goes though, are they? Well, they say that uh, I think um, Celtic blood is basically in 98% or some very high percentage of um, Europeans. Mm. Um, but, yeah, the Irish uh, Celtic um, people like have more in common with um, Brittany uh, and the Basque area so that northwest of France and northeast of Spain and they had trading routes. I mean, in Brittany in France... Um, they the street signs are in French and then underneath they're in Gaelic. Okay, in Ireland? No, in France. Oh, in France. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So and a lot of people that speak Gaelic or? Yeah, it's like it's the native tongue for the the older native tongue. So, yeah, it's interesting. There is actually, um, yeah, the Celts and the Irish, like South and Southwest Ireland, yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to tell them they're the same same historically the same people as the English because it's just that's not how it is. Right. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if it's as bad in Australia as like, uh, I get uh, 
mistaken a lot here f- for being from New Zealand. Do you? Yeah, for some reason. People are like, you from New Zealand? And I'm like, no, why would you guess? Like, I mean, you have a higher chance of being wrong. Like, they, they say that because they're like, oh, I can't tell the difference between the accents. And I'm like, well, why, it's like saying why pick the Canada. one that you have a higher chance of being wrong for? It's like this, what, five It's times? probably because, like, New Zealanders hate being called Australians. So, if you get off, right. you know, whereas Australians don't mind. It's the same love-hate relationship that, you know, Canada and the US and even Australia to the US have, like, you know what I mean? Right. So, the bigger brother always gets hassled more than the little right, right. <laughs> that's a good point i never really thought of that it's like if they say new zealand they know australians won't get pissed off at that but if they say australian new zealanders might get pissed. you totally it's like if you say oh you're american to a canadian <laughs> they hate that right right yeah i heard a uh, the u.s everybody looks at the u.s the same way that the u.s looks at texas okay yeah, yeah 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 sure i don't know if that's the case yeah i mean i know <laughs> australia has a sort of love-hate relationship with the u.s i mean the u.s is like the big brother bigger sibling to australia right uh, in a lot of ways and we look up to the u.s but then we also sort of you know hassle it out as well but it's you know it's like, yeah but we do we yeah we look up to america a lot i think in culturally and so many different ways um fuck what else do you want to talk about what do you want to talk? I'm, I'm easy. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm happy to be here, play some shows over the next uh, couple of weekends left here. Oh, um, you're one of the only people to have a typical lab. You talk about that. Oh, yeah. That's true. You talk about omelette, maybe. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, Dave, I met Dave. What's the first time? I was actually in Symbiosis Festival in 2000, and maybe the 2006 or something, or 2007. I think it was 2006. I played the first three of those, but. Um, I think it might have been the second one or third one even. Um, Bosque, who uh, runs Symbiosis, who's a friend of mine, um, you know, called me up and he said, oh, dude, I've got a really good slot for you. It's between these two really popular acts, really good acts called Ott and Timper, and I hadn't heard of either of them. <laughs> oh, wow. And um, I was like, okay, righto. And so, yeah, looked up their music, you know, the week before, and I was like, wow, it's pretty awesome, particularly Tippers had just released that. Bro- um, what's it called? Broken Soul Jam. No, no, no. It was w- way before that. Um, like Wobble Factor. Not before that. Tip Hop. No, after that. Seamless. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was that. He just released that. I think that month or something. When anyway, uh, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And um, yeah, played my set, and then we sort of, yeah, like he obviously. No, I started with some demented. Like intro, I think I played after him actually, and I started with some demented intro. Um, and he was like, "Whoa, what's this? this? Is demental?" And then yeah, played a few sets. I think he played at Shambhala, and, I, and he came and saw my set. And then um, yeah, and then I uh, asked him to uh, if he wanted to play some shows in Australia, and I organised a few three tours for him over about five years. Cool. And, um, yeah, and we got, became good friends through that process and he came and stayed with me and hung out in the studio and we started a collab and, yeah, and we, yeah, we got along really well, have a pretty similar aesthetic, I think. Yeah, I was going um, yeah, kind of like really wet and squelchy. And stuff. Yeah, and probably coming from a similar place in terms of what we grew up with, even though he grew up in the UK and I grew up in Australia. Mm-hmm. We sort of were probably influenced by some of the similar. How did, how did you get into that like wet and squelchy sound design? Um, I don't know. It just sort of appealed to me stylistically. I remember one show I played in Folsom Street in about 2005. I think it was my first club show in San Francisco. 
I was playing a track and so, it might have been 2006 actually, but I was playing a track and off like a, a nest egg album. So no, it must have been 2007. Uh, off Nest Egg and um, and someone came up to me and said, oh, I love this Tipper track. <laughs> I was like, what? What are you talking no, no, this is my track. And they're like, oh, yeah, bullshit. No, don't tell me. So, yeah. Anyway, um, I don't know how it sort of came about, but um, I was really into like the big beat scene in the mid-90s when I was sort of growing up so as a think, teenager. Um, the way that you came across to enjoy the squelchy shit, was not so much from the tech, but from the other music. Yeah, and yeah, I found I really liked the sort of more absurd, comical stuff that was coming out of the UK, like Mr. Scruff, and right. but that was a bit later, earlier on, like um, uh, like Bentley Rhythm Ace, okay. who I was playing you the other night. Yeah, they sounded very much like your stuff. I think. Yeah, they were a huge influence Bentley of mine. Bentley Rhythm Ace. Bentley Rhythm Ace. Yeah. Uh, I was the bass player from Pop Elite itself, and yeah, they're really fun, really kooky, off the wall, wacky. It was sort of like that big beat movement, sort of pre Propeller Heads, five years before Fatboy Slim started, all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. But and then I got right into like Ninja Tune stuff, and people like early Mr. Scruff, like Eating Fish. Fish. Have you heard that song? <laughs> no. Oh, it's sick. <laughs> so good. And I was just like, oh my god, this is so wacky. And so I think I think that. Although they weren't using like as many bonkers, like weird sort of comedic sounds, just right. that I, I really I loved that sort of more funny, wonky weirdness. Oh, speaking of sounds, um, I think it was the Mollusk who told me that you shared like folders and folders worth of sounds from him that you'd somehow accrued through working on like commercials and TV stuff. Oh, ABC maybe? Might have been that. And he yeah. had like a bunch of these like Hanna-Barbera style sound effects and stuff that like no one else had. Okay, That's yeah. I got a lot of them from um, a friend of mine uh, works for Canal Plus in Paris, okay. which is the biggest TV network in Europe. Right. And so he's like uh, a main mix engineer. I remember he passed me years ago like um, a whole lot of, yeah, sound effects from different things. But maybe from there. Um, but yeah, did some work, did some sound installation work, and got access to the ABC archives, and so mm-hmm. got lots of cool stuff. More like historical Australian-based like events, you know, mm-hmm. that were recorded and samples. Yeah, that was cool as well. Yeah, maybe we could talk about that a bit. Like you, you did a bunch of work for like Fox Sports and ABC and stuff like that. How did yeah? How did you get into that? Stuff? Um, I just got approached. Because of my music. So oh, wow, okay. all the jobs, I've never actually looked for a job in sound design. It's all been from just doing what I do and having people go, right, well, this is maybe something we're after. Mm-hmm. We want something a little bit off the wall. Yeah, that's, <laughs> left how, I, that's how I got the, the movie too. Mm. Like just yeah. So, yeah. I th- yeah, I mean, there must be, you know, and that's probably, it's a I think that's got merit. Uh, obviously, it's the best way because it means that people are coming to you because of what you do and you don't have to bastardise your art to mm-hmm. suit the commercial outcome. Right. So that's awesome, you know. You can just make something that you are- uh, That you actually want to make. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and so that's cool. Um, yeah, I did some- worked on a bunch of um, video games as well. Uh, did some stuff for Microsoft and- Which uh, Which video games? Um, this one called Beat Booster, which is like in China, the Microsoft Xbox is banned in China. Oh, it's wow. not allowed. So they came up with during when the Xbox Connect came out, 
just before that, the Asus, or around the same time, Asus bought out their version of the depth camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and we built a game that was bundled with the hardware. So it went to, I don't know how many they made, but a lot. Right, right. <laughs> um, for the Chinese market. And again, you just got approached for this just- uh, Well, actually, it was a startup um, uh, based in Melbourne, but the guy that had hunted me was an Israeli guy who used to work for Intel. He'd moved to Melbourne and he- you know, saw me play at lots of festivals and and approached me and said, well, you know, I really love you to come and work with us on this title. And so it's actually the depth camera was Israeli uh, military technology ported to the games industry. Dude, the military technology <laughs> in Israel is insane. Yeah, exactly. So, so. Um, yeah, a lot of the people in Israel have, have told me that, like, they'll see sort of bombs sometimes go over the top yeah. and just see another thing, just shoot it out of the sky. Yeah, sketchy. Yeah. Um, so this game that we developed was called Beat Booster and it was a semi-procedural music-making uh, game, but you're sitting basically you're sort of like a Mario Kart, but you're sitting on a jet rocket flying through this steampunk-inspired tropical wonderland collecting energy with your arms. Okay. And it's all using your body. It's using the depth camera. Right. And so... Yeah, the whole uh, – so I had to basically make loads and loads and loads of loops that would work over it, It's uh, you know, that would be able to be spliced together and would work musically over each other mm-hmm. depending on where you go in the circuits and so forth. It changes and if you – you know, where you're in the race, if you're winning or whatever. And all the sounds you made, rather than being, like, generated as you play the game, you were, gen- you were making like wave files yep. that would sit inside the game? Yeah. Okay. And then when Old they Vorbis do certain things sense. in the game, it would it would trigger the wave file? Yeah. and But then you'd have music, theme music. Mm-hmm. So that Astra Archipelago EP, mm-hmm. that is from the game. That oh, is okay. like a linear version of, a, some, of the, some of the circuits. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. that album. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's why awesome. that's that sort of tropical steam, yeah. steampunk sort of uh like yeah so that's where that sort of evolved i decided to make an ep because out of like yeah like linear versions of some of these tracks um yeah so you basically have all these loops that were the theme and they would change and crossfade with other loops depending on if you're coming first or if you're going through a tunnel you might have ooga, booga, ooga, booga, you know chant, <laughs> or then you go through another part and right, you have right. this hang drum sort of solo nice. groove or whatever. Cool. Yeah. So I listened to a podcast the other day about like the original Xbox sound. Okay. And um, because there was such a small, limited amount of space to use for it, they had to make it all generative, basically. So um, when you load, when you turn the Xbox on, uh, there is a hard drive in there, like a bigger hard drive that can hold more shit, but when you turn it on, that hard drive hasn't spun up yet. So there was a tiny little, I want to say, I want to say it was a flash drive if that technology existed then. That was 256 kilobytes. But then about 180 kilobytes of that was used up by like the Xbox symbol. The graphic, yeah, the logo. And some other shit. So, so the, the, sound, the sound designer was left with like <laughs> 65 kilobytes of space or something to work with. Yeah, right. And so he had to like, he was able to get like one MP3 file in there of like some chimes. And then the rest had to be oscillators. Yeah, wow. Um, so it was all. That's pretty classic. Yeah, and he managed cool. to get it down to sixty something. And how long does it? What? What's the? The sound only goes for like I don't know, maybe ten seconds. Okay, if that. It's just yeah. like a startup sound. Yeah, yeah. And that sound is just there to like sort of facilitate your. You attention. know that it's turned on or whatever. Right, yeah. like just to facilitate 
you being entertained whilst the thing whilst the actual hard drive spins up sure it's classy yeah it's kind of crazy um and then i was i want to say i was talking to another friend of mine who does game sound and he was trying to do the whole thing generatively too for the same reason just to save space so when you download a game instead of it being like you know 10 gigabytes yeah off the like you know if you download a playstation game quite often they're fucking huge Mm. um and he was like well most of the size or a lot of it comes from believe it or not the wave file well they're, they're not usually in wave file format oh, in like og og yeah og forbus. Forbus. yeah that's right <laughs> right um but they do get a lot of uh even though they are which is then um the problem with that is it uses more processing to um uncompress them on the fly right but um so there's a trade-off between download size and performance so if they're just in wave then there's no doesn't have to do that extra decompressing thing. as as you're running this the um but then yeah a lot of people have you heard of fmod yep yeah so that's a pretty cool piece of software which is actually designed and developed in melbourne i think so you were having to use that to- we weren't but um we were using unity and unity has elements of fmod inbuilt into unity actually okay. but um yeah it's pretty cool fmod's a pretty cool software package so mm-hmm. it it's like, you know, it's just got a couple of little simple smarts in it to get a lot more use out of a single one shot and co- create variation with that one sample, you know, changing the sample rate to change the pitch. And, yeah, so it's quite cool. Sick. So you just, you know, you place a, an audio emitter in a certain space. So if you go near it, it triggers, you know, like, you know, and then an animation of a rock falling or whatever it is and a sound of rocks in the ground then that will be different every time with some of the technology that FMOD employs. So it's yeah, cool. that's what my friend I was talking to was saying. Like if, if there's like a chime or something, mm-hmm. it'll trigger like some physical modeling synth. And yeah. depending on like how many chimes get hit, it'll depend like how many, uh, what do you call the physical modeling, the excitator. Okay. Like that'll, it'll excitate. Like if you hit three chimes, it'll have three excitators that gets fed into um, what's the other part of a physical modeling synth called whatever, like the tube or the, I don't know, the delay line. We did. We worked on um, the same development team, actually. Um, we got funding from Intel to work on a much more experimental game, which really, really cool game concept. Called, and we called it Muse. We um, showcased it at the Gamescom. You know, it's like a 400,000-person games meet in, in, in Cologne. Oh, wow, okay. Germany. So you flew to Cologne for that? Yeah, and we exhibited it in some, a bunch of other places. But, uh, yeah, it was very, very cool concept, but it tried to – it actually – we never released it, unfortunately, because it just um, – yeah, it was constantly adding too many – um, new features and it just like it just blew itself out of the water and it sort of fell apart, ate itself alive. But basically, the concept was you were um, controlling a school of fish through a tropical psychedelic underwater environment, and you, these sort of tadpole like fish would come and join your um, um, flock or swarm or whatever, and each one would represent a musical event, whether it was a hi hat hit a chord, a melody note, a bass note. And um, behind, underneath the hood, we had uh, Fab Filters Twin 2 running, multiple instances of that. What, what is Twin 2? It's like a filter? It's a, it's a synth, soft synth. Okay. So Fab, Fab Filters, like, you know, flagship soft synth, software synthesizer. Never used it. Is it good? Yeah. Cool. That's surprising you haven't used it. Yeah. Um, anyway. So just a subtractive synth? Or? Um, it does. I think it's – I haven't used it for a long, long time, but I think you can do – I don't know if you can import samples as well, maybe as well. Okay. Um, 
And, yeah, so it was a pretty cool concept. And then you could go into these musical wonders and then resequence what had been procedurally sort of had evolved based on how you'd navigate it through this space. And so you could resequence and you could play with these um, like a frequency painter sort of concepts uh, where you could change the parameters of the soft synth. So it was sort of like providing a, a, a digital audio workstation in skinned in a in a real game. Right, right. Um, yeah, there's a few mechanics, games so. like that now where where they've kind this of This is a while ago though and there was nothing right, right. really out there like it and I think there's like really a, cool. a bunch of shit like that now ha- um happening in VR like there's a yeah. a tipper track in one of them I think it's called yeah. Beat Surfer or Beat Oh yeah, I played that at his place recently. Yeah, did, um, he, did he make you walk off the plank? Yep. Yeah. Dude, that how, how did it fuck you up? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, we worked – too, man. Actually, it's interesting because we worked for Oculus on a on – a, um, yeah, when it was just coming out, when Oculus was just coming out, we were working on a, a game for that as well, which with, with one of my tracks called? and a tipper track and what? What was the game? Uh, it never got released. Okay. Yeah, but it was a similar sort of – it was different to that. It was more generative visuals with sort of like and a track broken down into like its stems and will play out differently. You'd remix it based on how you navigate right. this space. And I want to explain this fucking plank thing. So, yeah, I went over to Dave's uh, and he he was like, oh, man, you got to check this out. <laughs> and he put the, the VR goggles on me mm-hmm. and he was like, all right, now walk into the into the elevator. He did that to me, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I, I walked in there and he's like, yeah, press the one that says plank. And I was like, all right. And it's like it goes up like sixty stories or something, and then and you can see that the scary thing is you can see the crack through the elevator doors and you're going higher and higher. Yeah, and you're like, oh, this is going pretty high, and then it opens, and you're like above a whole city where like it's so high that you can see helicopters flying past you and shit. And then there's like a thin plank, and he's like, all right, now you just got to walk out on that plank. Yeah, freaky, isn't it? Yeah, I was like looking down. Yeah, it was full vertigo. It yeah, fully triggered like every mm. part of the vertigo in my brain that the real experience would have. Absolutely. I, no. I mean, other than like wind, that would probably like push you in real life, which would be even fucking freakier. Definitely, just like walking. Um, yeah, I remember going to the virtual reality center at RMIT in Melbourne um, have University. You heard the Twenty point sound system. No, this is years ago when I studied there in okay. like two thousand or whatever. And anyway. Um, that we went on this they showed us a flight simulator mm-hmm. and they actually used this system to train um like fighter jet pilots wow. the same um you know immersive screen it's like a curved screen that you sit in the middle and wraps right around you the graphics are so budget like mm-hmm. they're so look like you know mid 90s sort of graphics but it still made me feel like when when the plane was just cruising and then suddenly it went right. and went right up in the sky and flipped upside down like woof, and I my body was telling my brain like my brain was telling my body I'm upside down right right yeah, exactly. I'm gonna vomit that's the thing is that it's, it's unbelievable same with Richie's plank experience the yeah. graphics are shit but I mean they're not shit but like they don't it, nothing no. looks, it doesn't look real it's very no animated. but you can amazing how easily it can trick your right your brain is still like I'm sixty floors up on a plank yeah this is fucking crazy <laughs> yeah. and you try and tell yourself no that's not right what's happening I'm not scared but you still feel the same yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, and like walking off the edge. Did you walk off the edge? Yeah, yeah, I jumped on. Whoa! Oh. <laughs> Definitely like when it hit the ground. I was like, yeah, Whoa. like fucking triggers your whole nervous system. It, yeah. Like, it's really I wonder good. how many times you'd have to do it to like desensitize yourself to it because I've done it a few times since with other people's things, just trying to expose myself to it so yeah. I can become desensitized to it for whatever reason because yeah. I don't like feeling. Yeah. I like to 
Yeah, yeah, being control of control yeah, of those yeah. things. <laughs> and um, it, it doesn't get easier. Like I've done it maybe five times now, and it, every time fucks yeah. me up. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I'm we've chatted for like fucking hour and hour and fifteen minutes. No worries. So that's probably good. Yeah. That's thanks, cool. thanks for doing this, man. Oh, no worries. Absolute pleasure. Good to be here in San Francisco with you, man. Yeah. And it's good to see your setup here. Yeah. Sweet. Fuck yeah. All right. All right. Um, do you want to plug anything before we stop? Oh, not really. Good new album. Uh, have I? I'm working on, yeah, I'm working on some new tunes. I'm not sure exactly what format they're going to take. Probably an EP of some sort of party vibes and then I'll continue working on, sort of got those two trajectories going, I suppose, more party-ish style vibes and then more like in EPs and then albums as more, you know, cinematic that, that listening seems experiences. Like the, yeah, I reckon that that's a good formula. I'm kind of mm-hmm. doing the same thing at the yeah. moment. It's like heavier EPs and then I think if I do another album, it's going to be more like IDM or something. More listening music, right? Yeah, something yeah. that you'd sit there and listen to the whole thing because it's like more of a like, overall journey experience. or whatever. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, I'll put it. I'll definitely put out an EP this year. The more party stuff that's pretty much nearly done. But I'll just keep writing music and see what I want to put out and what I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, um, got some shows coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so yeah, how do people like? What's the best way for people to find all your shows? Probably either well, it's on it's listed on Songkick. Uh, it's on Facebook under my events or whatever, um, or my website spoonbill.net.au. Cool. Any one of those is cool. Yeah. Also, I suppose I should just mention um, my wife has made a range of clothing. She's a fashion designer, costume designer, mm-hmm. and she's super talented. And um, she's just released a line of mer- like Spoonbill merch, but it's her. But she's actually designed it and is making yeah, it all herself. Yeah, fucking sick, man. Yeah, so it's actually um, cover art that my dad did, so artwork that my father's done that I've employed for the last two albums, Tinkerbox and Canopy, mm-hmm. and then I've used that and vectorized it and tessellated it and then printed it onto fabric and she's sewing up different sorts of garments with it. It's very nice. cool. It's very Also just on your website? Yeah, that's under Bandcamp, under my merch sort of tab under Bandcamp. So yeah. com. Mm-hmm. Sick. Yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. Well, thanks. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.